In our last study, we talked about monarchies, human monarchies, as in the case of King Saul, who was the first appointed king of Israel. And then we made reference to Jesus Christ, the king, appointed by God be the king over his people, not only in a physical sense of geography and population, but also in the spiritual sense of being the spiritual king that governs heaven and all who enter therein. Our text today deals again a bit with the physical, talking about Christ as he was presented by God to the people of Israel, Jerusalem, to be their king that would lead them into spiritual realities. And while this looked really good on the day it happened, just a few short days after this triumphal entry, many of these same people were crying out, crucify him, crucify him, as he was nailed to a cross. Now as we come to our study, Let's ask the Lord to be our teacher. Father, we um, read a text like this, and when we know it's history, we are reminded of the fickleness of men's hearts and how crowds can be swayed, even move from one position to another if there's enough rebel rousers to do that. And such was the case here. But that aside, Jesus is still the great king. And he was presented to Israel in this formal way. And while the accolades seem positive, in eventuality, he was rejected, despised among men. No one esteemed him as the king that he was. But that'll never, ever happen again. Pray that you'll bless us today and help us in our study to learn the truths of thy word, the glory of our king in whose name we come. Amen. Our text is Luke 19. And this section is dealing with what is traditionally called Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Coats, palm branches, strewn on the street as a welcome mat. What is noteworthy is that all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, record this event. Now whenever you have four authors recording the same event, the thing that ought to be registered in our mind is this is very important. Very important. We have a fourfold recognition from eyewitnesses that this event occurred and we have remarkable parallelism in the descriptions. What is noteworthy, however, is the differences in detail each author brings to the event. We should not be surprised at this. 
If I were to ask some of our church who attended family conference to give a synopsis of what occurred there, who spoke, what was said, what you learned, what you ate for breakfast, did you purchase any books at the book table, it would be safe for me to assume that for every person I interviewed, there would be similarities in what they saw and heard and did, but there would also be some differences. Equally important, equally valid, because all of us see things in different ways and we value certain details while dismissing or ignoring others. This is why policemen investigating a crime scene or an accident interview as many witnesses as they can. By doing so, they begin to piece together a more complete picture of what occurred than they would otherwise be able to do with only one witness. Now, it's not that one witness would be assumed to be a liar, but simply that one person is not going to take in and think through everything that occurred. We're just not built that way. Well, Bible critics have not always seen the value of this when it comes to the four Gospels in particular. Instead of taking a synergistic approach in which each account dovetails into and supports the other accounts, the critics sometimes accuse the biblical authors of fallibility because one says one thing and another says another. One thing we should recognize about inspiration of the scriptures is what Paul told Timothy. Here's what he wrote. All scripture is God-breathed. That means the words come from God. All scripture, graphe is the Greek word from which we get graphite. Your pencils are full of graphite or we say lead. Uh, all scripture is God breathed, God written down. It means that the words come from God. Peter tells us how this worked out in a practical way. Peter writes, no prophecy of scripture. Listen to these sweeping terms. No prophecy of scripture. All scripture. You know, they're, they're, they're covering all the bases here. No prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never, here it is again, never had its origin in the will of man. In other words, there's no man-made thoughts here. But men spoke from God. Not for God, though that's true too. But from God, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1, verse 20 and 21. Why is this important? Because the man on the street believes that the Bible was written by men. 
But he does not mean that the Bible was penned by men as they were carried along by God's Spirit. No, he means that the Bible is merely a collective account of men's religious opinions. What Peter says, own interpretation. And Peter says it never happened that way. If this were true, then the Bible would have no more to say to us about spiritual things than any other book of philosophy. And indeed, unbelievers have concluded that very thing to be the peril, and it's to the peril of their own souls. They say, oh, it's just a book written by men, just like people write about philosophies and so on. Now to come back to our text. How's come in these four accounts of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, we don't have a word-for-word -word identical text if in fact the text is breathed out by God himself and if these human authors were all inspired by the same Holy Spirit of God? That's a good question. The reason for this is that in, in inspiration, God allowed each author to write in his own style, using his own normal way of expressing ideas, his own faculties of speech, but superintended the process so that the outcome was nothing less than the very words God wanted recorded. That's the idea of the Holy Spirit carrying the author along as he's writing down his experience. And by the way, this is why we can read a book of the Bible and recognize, for example, this book was written by Paul. Or this book was written by John. How? Why? Because they each have their style. They even have their particular words that they like. For example, give you an example here. Paul usually refers to Jesus in his writings, Christ Jesus. That's the way he writes it. Christ Jesus. It's used over 80 times by Paul, but never by any other biblical author. Well, when the critics picked up on that and the Bible scholars picked on them, they said, this is a Pauline book. He wrote it. Look at the way he describes Jesus. It's always Christ Jesus. Now, as to why he did that, you know that Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. And as a Jew and as a rabbi, which Paul was, he never thought of Jesus as the Messiah until his conversion experience on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. And after that experience, he couldn't get it out of his brain. I was opposing and fighting against my Messiah. So in his writings, he always writes, Messiah, Savior. Messiah, Savior. That style of his is imprinted in his writings. There's nothing magical about this, but there is something spiritual 
about it, which supersedes all human limitations. Many times in the Bible, this is beyond doubt, because the author will write something like this. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, and then you know what comes after, what follows, is a verbatim quote from God. Spirit of God moving in Jeremiah's heart. At other times, as here in the Gospels, we simply have four accounts of men who observe the same event, but with different emphasis and different detail. Each wrote what he saw, what he heard. Some of the material duplicates what the other disciples wrote. Some of the material differs, but the differences do not mean something is, someone is mistaken or that someone is lying. That's the way the critics always go. It only means that God allowed them to witness and record things omitted by the others. And by the way, it doesn't change any doctrine. If Paul writes Christ Jesus and the other authors write Jesus Christ, does that change anything? Do we not know what person is being talked about here? So we do not get out the hatchet and begin to whack away at the differences. That's what critics do. No, instead... It is the task of Bible students to pull all the pieces together to construct the whole picture. All the detail is valid. That's the point. Nothing is to go to the chopping block. Every account is God's word, written in the style of the human penman as God's spirit empowered him. And that's how we got our Bible. That's why we can see uh, certain styles and yeah they had their favorite phrases and expressions and all of those things but an end product is God's revelation now that brings us in your bulletin outline then to the king has already come the timing of Jesus entry into Jerusalem is very significant John 12 verse 1 sets the time as six days before the Passover that's written right in the text, six days before the Passover. None of the other accounts say this. Though it's not hard to figure out by reading the accounts before and after this entry. John is even more specific, however, when he says in verse 12 of John 12, the next day the great crowd that had come for the feast, again referring to the Passover, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. What time reference is indicated by the expression, the next day? The preceding verses discuss Jesus being at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. On this occasion, Mary had poured a pint of costly perfume on Jesus' feet and he had, she had wiped his feet with her hair, to which Judas took exception and received this rebuke from Jesus, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save that perfume for the day of my burial. You see, Jesus knew his 
hour had come, John 12, verse 23, for his crucifixion. Now the people got wind of Jesus being at the home of Lazarus, and we read, so the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. So this stupendous miracle, the people began to figure out, oh, this, this Jesus is somebody special here. He even calls the dead to life after he's been dead for four days. And we read, the next day the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him so it's the next day after the events with Lazarus so the timing of this entry into Jerusalem by Jesus is pinpointed by John to have occurred the next day after Jesus had visited Mary Martha and Lazarus and is connected with this stupendous miracle of raising Lazarus to life after being dead in the grave John 11 verse 39 now John tells us in his account, chapter 12, verse 17, Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. John 12, verse 17 and 18. Now Luke alludes to this in our text, verse 37. The whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for what? For all the miracles they had seen. But John is the only author who tells us that the miracle most on people's minds was the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Now, it doesn't mean that Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account are wrong, but simply that this is a detail only John includes in his gospel. Now, keep in mind here the historical setting for John's gospel. John's gospel was written after all the other gospel writers had written their accounts, after all of them were dead and gone. So John is not so much interested in duplicating what has already been said, but to provide details that the others omitted. And we're so thankful to have John's epilogue, we might say, to the whole event. So sometimes timing is everything. And I think this is one of those occasions why was there such a large crowd waiting at the gates of Jerusalem as Jesus was coming from Bethany? Was it simply that they had heard Jesus was coming? No, not at all. It was because a large crowd found out that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, John 12, verse 9, and the next day, they wasted no time spreading the word, chapter 12, verse 17, that Jesus was en route to Jerusalem 
And this was too much for the miracle, work, uh, miracle seekers to resist, verse 18. They had to just get out and see this stupendous miracle worker that had raised Lazarus from the dead. The other thing we should note about this timing is that though Jesus had attended a number of Passover feasts in the days of his ministry, this one was yet was to be his last, of which he later would say to his disciples, I have eager desire, eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Luke 22, verse 15. So this is a special Passover like no other. Every other Jewish Passover was a feast celebrating that night in ancient Egypt just before Israel's exodus to freedom from their captors when they took a perfect male lamb from their flock and sacrificed it and painted its blood on the doorpost and the lintel of their home forming the sign of the cross so that when the death angel struck down the firstborn sons of Egypt he passed over those families protected by the blood of the lamb who had been sacrificed as their substitute. Now thousands of years later, Jesus of Nazareth, whom John the Baptist identified as the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, John 1 verse 29, was about to be sacrificed on a uh, truly wooden cross that all who stand behind his atoning blood may be passed over when death and damnation come calling. Wow, symbolism and its fulfillment. Paul puts it this way, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. So timing is everything with God and nothing, nothing is by chance when God is involved. We read, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under law that he might receive, we might receive the full rights of sons. Galatians 4, verse 4 and 5. To redeem means to secure by making a payment. Think ransom. Peter words it this way. You know that it is not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb, there it is, without blemish or defect. You see how it plugs in to Passover in Exodus? Peter goes on, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. 1 Peter 1, verse 18 through 20. God was in the timing of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem with the Passover offering of his own body just hours away. God's plans are never late. They are never delayed by unforeseen circumstances. God's timetable is dead on 24-7, year in, year out. Will you be ready for Jesus' second coming? His second 
and real triumphal entry. Secondly, that brings us then to Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. As noted, all the gospel authors state specifically that Jesus sent disciples into the village. Now this would be Bethage, just before you get to Jerusalem. Into the village of Bethage to fetch a donkey colt for him to ride into Jerusalem. Our text, verse 30, tells us that this was a colt which no one had ever ridden. Mark 11, verse 2, has the same identical statement. John calls the animal a young donkey, chapter 12, verse 14. Matthew tells us that both the mother of the colt and the colt itself were to be fetched. That tells you how young the colt was, very much still attached to mama. So they brought them both. Now, here's my question. <laughs> Why all this detail about a simple beast of burden? Have you ever thought about that? And a rather insignificant animal at that. Why would Jesus specify a colt instead of a white or black horse? I mean, isn't a stallion a more regal mount for a king to ride? than a little baby donkey. Well, we read this morning in our meditation reading, the prophet Zechariah had prophesied centuries, centuries before. Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. That's Jerusalem. Shout, daughters of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim, and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea, and from the river, rivers capitalized, it's referring to the Euphrates, which by the way is in Iraq, he will extend his rule from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Zechariah 9, verse 9 and 10. You see, the coal was in keeping with Jesus' humility and gentleness. The world of Jesus' day had seen enough of chariots and war horses thundering over the landscape, carrying soldiers who pillaged the land and raped the women and killed off its inhabitants without mercy and then had the audacity to burn the crops. They had seen a lot of that. And Jesus was a different king. In his own words, Matthew 11, verse 29, I am gentle and humble in heart. He came to proclaim peace to war-torn countries ruined by the infighting and greed that sinners perpetrate against one another. And I think how silly Jesus must have looked upon that little colt with his feet barely hovering above the ground as it worked its way through the gate of Jerusalem. Ah, but do not mistake meekness for weakness. 
and humility for senility. Jesus was in full control of these events as he will one day be in control of the events of his second coming. That unbroken colt would have bucked and bulked under any first-time rider, but not under the weight of that one who could command Balaam's donkey to speak and restrain him from cursing the very people he was sent to bless. Numbers 22, verse 28 and following. That one who commanded Jonah's great fish to vomit him out on the land, Jonah 2, verse 10, is a king indeed. Dr. Doolittle talking to the animals is fiction. But the creator of all living things, great and small, has but to speak and immediate obedience is the result. The psalmist said of God, He spoke and there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout their country. Speaking of the Egyptians. He spoke and locusts came, grasshoppers without number. Psalm 105, verse 30, verse 34. That's our God. He but speaks. Creatures obey. That was Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Now, did the people of his day see the significance of Jesus' entrance on a colt? To use George's expression, did they connect the dots? I think they did. Look, verse, uh, look at the accolades of the crowd. Verse 34 of our text says, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Mark's account. Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Mark 11 verse 9. Matthew's account. Hosanna to the son of David. David being Israel's most illustrious king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Matthew 21 verse 9. And John's account. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Do you get it? King, kingdom, son of David. Israel's the most wonderful king. I think it's clear that the people caught the symbolism of Jesus entering Jerusalem on a colt in fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation. And then, by the way, that's what Hosanna means, save or Lord save us. Gentle and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah says, here's how your king's coming. And they're connecting the dots. They're saying he's the king. He's the savior. Some, no doubt, got carried away with the celebration. They shouted, Hosanna, Lord save us when they were not looking for a savior from sins at all, but for a savior from Rome's oppression. 
They missed, you see, the symbolism of the cult. And they were looking instead for the warrior concept of Savior. Others said peace. Verse 38 of our text. But it was as Paul predicted for the last days. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace. Safety. Destruction will come on them suddenly. And they will not escape. 1 Thessalonians 5. Verse 2 and 3. So there were accolades from the crowd. And there was some connection that they knew that. This symbolism, this cult, had to do with Zechariah's prophecy. But there were some other people in the crowd. There were unbelievers in the crowd. Crowds of people are usually a mixed blessing. Some were excited about seeing Jesus, but they were shallow in their interest. They wanted the thrill of seeing the great miracle worker. Others were genuine followers of Jesus. John 12 verse 11 says... Many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him as a result of this great miracle of raising Lazarus. The twelve disciples of Jesus, the inner circle, they were there too. But John admitted of himself, verse 16, John 12, at first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified, that is, returned to glory, to heaven, did they realize that these things had been written about him? So even the inner twelve didn't catch it at the moment. But there was another group of observers there that day as well, and they were the murder plotters. They were there. John 11, verse 57, says the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it to them so that they might arrest him. And then 12, John 12 verse 9 states, So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. As well as what? As well as Jesus if they could get their hand. Why would they want to kill Lazarus again after Jesus had... Because of Lazarus, many people were going over to and becoming disciples of Jesus. They were figuring it out. He must be God's son. So these religious leaders had for a long time hated Jesus because of his increasing popularity with the people. The more he increased, the more they decreased. Now the baptizer was happy to have it so with him and his disciples, but the Pharisees were not happy to have it so with them. We read many people because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. John 12, verse 18 and 19. You see their problem? You, can you not hear the jealousy in their words? Okay, but is that a reason to plot a person's death because you're jealous of them? Pilate the governor would later examine Jesus and find him innocent. The scripture says, knowing that it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. Mark 15 verse 10. He figured it out. 
He figured it out. Now there are two indicators in this event before us which highlight this point. One happened as Jesus entered the city on the colt and the other followed immediately when Jesus left the colt and entered the temple. Our text tells us that upon hearing the accolades of verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples because of what they're saying. Hosanna, the king, you know, all this. They're listening to this. And they don't like what they're hearing. And so they say to Jesus, you need to do something. Your disciples are out of control. They said this because they did not agree with the crowd calling Jesus the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Verse 38. To them that was blasphemy because they never admitted nor would admit that Jesus was God's son. Or had come as Hosanna, one to save. They wouldn't admit that. They were hardened murderers and they were in the middle of plotting Jesus' death. They got, got their hands on Lazarus, they'd have killed him again too. That's the first incident. Now the second incident was at the temple. When, if you have to read on through the text. When Jesus dismounted his donkey, entered and saw the corruption that was there, and drove out the money changers, turned over their money uh, tables and so on, and soon the people who were diseased began to come into the temple. And what happened? Jesus healed them. Matthew tells us, but, now listen to this, when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things Jesus did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Matthew 21, verse 15. See, the children picked up the same theme that was outside the temple when Jesus was coming in. And they said, Hosanna to the son of David. Let me tell you, you have to be pretty hard-hearted to object to sick people being healed and, and the children shouting praise for the healer. Pretty hard-hearted. And these men were very hard. And we need to ask the question, am I any different? Right before their eyes, they witnessed people being healed who were blind and lame. Not the unverifiable shenanigans that go on in the healing services that we have on TV. You can't fake blind very easy. John chapter 9. There is a spiritual blindness even more horrendous. And these religious leaders had it. You may have it too. All men have it by birth. Never get rid of it unless they come to Christ for healing. What has Jesus ever done to you that you should hate him so? That you would reject his offer of cleansing from sin and forgiveness with God. And yet that's our world. Luke tells us, verse 41 of our text, 
As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you. Remember, Jerusalem's high on a hill, surrounded by a huge wall. The days will come upon you when an enemy will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Luke 19, verse 41 through 44. Him, he, Jesus, on this goal, coming. God's son. And in AD 70, Titus marched his Roman legions into Jerusalem, burned the city, leveled the temple, never to rise again. Today an Arab mosque now sits on the temple site. Judgment from God and an insult added to injury because God's chosen people rejected his son. Now that brings us then to our final point that the king is coming again. It was the prophecies of God's word that enabled the believers to recognize Jesus as their king on this first coming. We read today from Zechariah's prophecy that Israel's king would enter Jerusalem riding on the colt of a donkey. That's pretty specific. And you know that all of God's prophecies are specific. They are. All God's prophecies. The birthplace of Bethlehem, named by Micah. The betrayal of Judas, Psalm 41. The suffering of Christ that he would endure, ending in his death, Isaiah 53. The words spoken by Jesus from his cross, Psalm 22. His burial place being assigned with the rich, Isaiah 53, verse 9. And more than 200 other such prophecies, all written centuries before the occurrences. Specific prophecies that you can attach to Jesus only to help us understand who this person is. There is in boxing a technique which every boxer must learn if he's going to be successful as a boxer. And that is don't telegraph your blows. To telegraph your moves is to send a message to your opponent on what you are about to do. It can be a shrug of the shoulder a dropping of your guard, a twitch in the eye, a tightening of the lips. These idiosyncrasies tell the opponent that you're about to let loose with something in terms of a powerful blow. And so, and so, boxers are trained to fight stone-faced. Stone-faced. No expression. You never know what's in their mind and you never know what's coming. It's a form of secrecy that's used 
to win the victory. May I say that God never treats humanity this way, not even his enemies. Instead, he tells us ahead of time what's coming and what will happen, how people will react, and the results of their actions. He is never deceptive. He's never secretive. He's out in the open. So just as his first coming, Christ has told humanity that he is coming back as king. And he can come back because he is alive and and victorious over the grave. Resurrection is the miracle of all the miracles culminating and authenticating his ministry. Lazarus is nothing compared to the resurrection of Christ. And his coming is primarily for his people, but there are repercussions for unbelievers as well. For believers, think of it this way. Jesus' return is more like a homecoming. Many passages speak of this, but the one I like the most is in John 14, where Jesus says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, I would have told you. See, he's nothing secretive here. He just says it up front. I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. John 14, 1 to 3. I read that and I I think there isn't a thing scary about this at all. The Savior is coming back to complete the salvation of his people. And he uses this to comfort his disciples because they know he's about to be crucified. And then thereafter we'll be going back to glory. And do you know Paul tells us that all of creation is waiting for this event. All but the unbelievers. Paul writes, the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Romans 8, verse 19 through 22. Christ's return will end God's curse on creation on thorns and thistles and diseases and death. It's homecoming. It's renewing of the earth. And the earth awaits it. For the unbelieving, for the rebels, for the hardened in sin, the religious leaders of our text, and all who are like them, Jesus' return is not anticipated with joy at all. Why? Because his second coming, in his second coming, 
There's no more colt or donkey, no more meek, no more lowly, no more blasphemy with, with impunity, no more crucify him, crucify him, which was all part of his first coming. Instead, John writes, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe that's dipped in blood. And his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Revelation 19, verse 11 through 16. That's a different coming, isn't it? (laughs) What is the reaction of all humanity? Let me read it for you. Listen to all these dignitaries. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty. It's all the people that's in power, right? It goes on. Every slave, every free man, What's he describing? John's saying, everyone, from the powers that be right on down to the guy that doesn't have any power. He's just a slave in somebody's house. Everyone hid in caves and among the rocks and the mountains, and they call them the mountains and the rocks. Fall on us! Hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. A Lamb that has wrath? Does that compute? For the great day of their wrath is come. Who can stand? Revelation 6, verse 15 through 17. Yeah, the lamb that was slain from before the creation of the world. Behold the lamb of God who takes away. That lamb is now coming back riding on a white steed as a great warrior. You see, no one will stand. That's the point. When the king comes, it's predicted, I'm asking this question, will you realize his return as a homecoming for his people or as a judgment day for his enemies? What will it be for you? You need to come to Jesus today in repentance of your sins and plead his mercy and ask his forgiveness now. 
Death may take you to him before his return brings him to you. And either way, you need a savior. You need a Hosanna, the God who saves, not a judge. Today is the day of salvation. He's told us what's coming, so there's no secret about it. But as men doubt and did doubt the word of God and Jesus' identity in the day of his coming into Jerusalem, so they doubt the word of God concerning his return. But the writers of scripture, John, writing part of the gospel accounts of the first event, writes the gospel account, or the revelation account of the second event. And he says, just as in the first, he's coming again, but when he comes back, he's coming as a warrior king mounted on a white steed. Look out. Be ready. Be prepared. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. We don't want Jesus to come back for us, for us, as judge and jury. Lord, may he come back as that gracious and loving king of whom he said himself that he was gentle and humble of heart. As he said that he went away to prepare a place for his disciples and would come again to receive them that we might be with him. May it be a homecoming for each one here. May it not be a day of judgment for anyone here. May they not come under the sword of his mouth, the crush of his iron scepter, but may they come under the gracious blood of Jesus that is able to forgive and cleanse from every sin. Lord, make us prepared. None of this is hidden. The only reason it's going to be a surprise for people that are unbelievers is because they don't believe what's written in the book. It's there to read, it's there to believe, but they don't believe it and they don't read it. And even when we preachers preach it, they don't believe it and they don't act upon it. But that's part of the stubborn, willful rebellion of a sinful heart. That's the Pharisees, the scribes, and the chief priests all over again. As it was that day long ago when you rode into Jerusalem on a colt. Lord, I pray that you will bring stubborn hearts out of their stubbornness and rebellion. Grant them the repentance they need and the faith that they need. May they become your children today. May they become your disciple today for the glory of Jesus, and for their own good. Amen.